0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. Hello, welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Susan Gray and it's my very great pleasure to have with me today Omer Friedlander who is the author of The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land. Omar, hello.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: One of the um, fabulous things for UK readers um, in The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land is that it takes us to landscapes that we are probably never gonna go to as pilgrims or tourists to Israel. Um, Were you very conscious of wanting to cover the whole country?
1: i guess it it kind of um came organically like that but um i think once i realized that maybe the stories are a collection and uh, i was looking at different parts of israel I, I i did i did want it to cover a um i mean both historically a kind of um a range, but also different also geographically uh different different places in israel and um I, I guess I wanted to avoid it being a kind of a travel guide or something, you know, to, to not write it in in the sense because I know I, because I'm writing it in English and not in Hebrew. There's this sense that I, I am writing for maybe a, a, an audience that's not familiar with the with the landscape necessarily um, and the people, but I did want it to keep some kind of authenticity in, in a sense of uh, not not writing it for 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 an outside audience necessarily. So it is interweaved with sort of words in Hebrew and places and things like that, that I hope even if the reader can't understand them, then maybe through the context, it's clear. Um, So kind of striking a balance between uh, writing it in English, obviously, which isn't my first language, but also uh, keeping a kind of uh, authenticity.
0: Does writing in a second language give you a sense of distance from the work?
1: It does, I think it does give me some distance and it allows me to maybe be more playful. And I guess with English, I lived in um, Princeton, New Jersey with my parents and my brother for uh, a couple of years when I was a kid. And that's where I learned English for the first time. But I remember when I arrived, um, I was maybe six years old and I, I couldn't speak any English. And I remember sort of feeling very out of place and I guess with with writing this kind of with writing this book in English about a place that's familiar to me, like really Israel, I wanted uh, to get that sense of, of being a bit of a stranger uh, in my home, and I guess writing in English allowed me to, to experience that, that again.
0: Yeah, I think it also brings a really cinematic quality to the writing um, that we feel as if we are observing the stories with you.
1: Thanks. Um, I, I think it, it was important for me to to tell the story through kind of scene and and character. And and I guess maybe that, that speaks to a bit of the cinematic quality you were saying. And I guess it, it allows me to tell the story in a kind of more um more intimate way, focusing on these characters and their relationships rather than just, you know, the the politics or or the history of the place, which I think is more in, in the background.
0: I'm gonna slightly do this in reverse order and that I want to talk about the afterword. Um, Before we talk about the actual stories, you quote David Grossman um, talking about people having an official story and then a more personal one. Can you tell me a little bit about the difference between the two and your efforts in the short stories to get past the the official story?
1: Yeah, Um, I think the way I understood what what he was saying there about official stories and, and unofficial stories, is i guess also to do with the relationship between an author and the character that they create because there's maybe a kind of intimacy once you get to know a character and you spend a lot of time with them and you uh it, it's almost like there's one story which is um more superficial maybe and, and is almost like a like an id or something you know the the facts of this person's life but then there are sort of stories underneath that and secrets and things that are buried and and, and I guess I wanted to kind of uh, have a this kind of relationship with my characters where I'm more aware of these uh, buried stories and, and secret stories, um, which I, I think is true for for characters. And it's also true for, for a place. And I think a place like Israel has a lot of these kinds of national myths and stories, just like any place uh, that are intertwined with politics and, and religion. And I wanted those stories to be in the background, but to to approach the ones that that I'm writing um, through this kind of subterranean layer and trying to see if I can get at a kind of more intimate truth than what we kind of, I don't know, see daily in in the newspapers or something.
0: Uh, You talk there about religious and national myths. I mean, does religion play a large or any part in your own life?
1: It's interesting. I think... um, (laughs) I guess the, the first time I felt, um, uh, not, maybe not the first time, but one of the times where I felt kind of more strongly that <laughs> suddenly that, oh, that I'm Jewish was actually when I moved away from Israel. So when I came to Cambridge, for example, to study and suddenly, I don't know, it was strange. Be, being being away from home, I suddenly felt a different kind of uh, identity. Um, but But at home, I mean, growing up, we would have you know dinners at my grandma's place for for the holidays and and do kind of the the basics of <laughs> the rituals and the singing and things but but no it wasn't it wasn't religious um in that sense I think it was more kind of I guess cultural you could say <laughs> it
0: so you you can draw a line between sort of um culture and beliefs
1: yeah I, I think so I mean um it, it's definitely something that that I'm interested in. With um, with some of these stories, one of them, Alti uh, is about these two junk collectors, and um, they're in a city called Tzfat, which is up north in Israel, and it's kind of it, it's a city with a kind of history of um kind of Jewish mysticism and uh, Kabbalah and all that kind of thing, and there's a lot of um, ultra orthodox Jews living there. Um, so it was, and and I, I lived there for a year after high school and it was very different from what I was used to. But also I think very very surprising. I think it, it was it was I think the mo- the most surprising things were the interactions I had actually with um some of these teenagers I worked with that uh had grown up in these very religious homes but uh had either left uh that kind of life or sometimes were kicked out if they kind of um you know I don't know did something that made their parents kind of um, want to to kind of lose touch with them and it was the, the stories were were difficult and I remember it was this kind of interesting feeling of uh, wanting to, to break free from some kind of tradition but but also this this need to, to have family and, and to belong to something so it was this kind of um, clashing uh, I guess uh, needs and um, it, it was interesting to me because I'd never grown up in, in uh, that kind of environment or or experienced those things. So, so I think it, that served as a kind of inspiration to, to that story in, in particular about these junk collectors in this city and uh, exploring this idea of a, a clash of old and new, which I think is very present in places like Tzfat and also places like Jerusalem. It's a very kind of strange clash of, <laughs> uh, of tradition and, and things that are very modern which i think produces this kind of interesting tension
0: and the the love interest in Alta um she is on the cusp of those two worlds isn't isn't she because she has both a a traditional a traditional life and then a a more liberated one when she goes off partying um i take it she was there is some inspiration for, in real life for adolescents like her
1: yeah, there, there was definitely, and I think I I heard a lot of stories when I was there. And she wasn't sort of based on a specific person, but but that kind of story is very familiar there uh, with the the teenagers I worked with, and and a, a lot of them they they do they do like telling stories a lot. I think some of them can kind of act a bit tough, and it, I I worked with sort of teenagers that were. Um, uh, some of them were in kind of uh, juvie or different prison systems for youth, but they do want someone to talk to. Uh, and, and sometimes their stories are very kind of um, intimate. And um, so I think I was interested also in that idea of having a kind of tough <laughs> shell or, or posture t- towards the world, but uh, that it kind of disguises something that's um, much more fragile in in kind of uh, precarious
0: the two boys the brothers in Alton uh, you'll have to pronounce my pronunciation here alton zaken
1: yeah and that's perfect
0: they are one of the many characters um in the collection who have this incredible sense of loss the younger brother keeping his father's voice alive on the cassette recorder what attracts you to writing about people who seem to be almost in a sort of perpetual grief aren't they
1: yeah i i I am interested in this um also this idea of memory that can be uh, encapsulated in, in an object and i think that this idea of a recording that they listen to over and over again was really interesting to me and the idea that at least a younger brother believes that the father's spirit or um essence is in this inside this object like a kind of idea of reincarnation or something. And, and I was interested in, uh, I guess, an idea of, of talismans or things that you can keep with you that preserve a kind of memory of a lost uh, loved one uh, or a parent, even though their relationship was complicated. And I, I guess it is the story about grief or the, the brother's grief about their their father's death, but also about their kind of um, the, the brother's relationship and kind of the way that um, they, they have this tension between the new and old uh, being junk collectors and um, and kind of collecting these objects that are broken or, or old and used and, and fixing them or uh, doing something new with them. So I, th- I think that also connects it to this idea of memory and the way that it can also change. And, and there's something kind of living about, about the memory of the father because he's always with them, uh, this voice. And I guess one of the ways that they they have of also breaking this grip that their father's memory has on them is is for the tape recorder to finally break and then to kind of, I guess, deal with the consequences. And, and I, I framed the story um, with this holiday of William where, where you dress up and Shawnee, the younger brother, has this mask of a panda bear uh, that he kind of wears all day and I guess hides in a way. And it ends with them seeing a group of children dressed up as junk collectors uh, um, as what they are. And also listening to a kind of, uh, you know, kind of mangled version of the <laughs> recording that these junk collectors play. And I guess I, I-, I wanted, uh, I I mean, the story is about grief, but I wanted the, the ending to be a little bit uh, <laughs> optimistic. I don't know if that came across or not, but the fact that the, the brothers have I mean, their their relationship is kind of strained throughout, but they do stay close, uh, even though the father dies and the mother is sort of absent throughout. So I hope the end has a little bit of <laughs> a kind of optimism, but uh, maybe not.
0: <laughs> and I, I think that um, something I'd like to talk about later is no. I think there is a silver cloud in a lot of your stories. Um, sometimes you've got to search for it, but um, you know, the silver lining, um, is always mm. is always there. You have quite a few lost fathers. You also have um, fathers who are struggling to function as fathers. Um, I'm thinking of the character in the title story, the man who sold air in the Holy Land, who is sort of not succeeding to materially provide for his family. And then also in um, Jellyfish in Gaza, uh, the father who comes home from the war Bart is, uh, is so traumatized; he can't function as a father either. People trying their best under extreme pressure seems to be uh, something you write about. Well, again, what's what's the attraction to these characters? We're really up against it, and if you were being mean, we could judge quite harshly. But you never do.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right, um, and that's a good connection to make between those two fathers. I, I didn't think of it, but um, I think with the title story. Uh, the father is this kind of, I guess he recalls this idea of the Luftmensch, the kind of man of air, um, which is, I guess, a kind of uh, person who is very bad at practical things and, and making a living and kind of uh, is very dreamy and has all these schemes uh, that, that kind of don't seem to, to lead anywhere. Uh, so this character has this Con with his daughter, where they sell bottles of air to tourists. And she kind of goes along with it. But I think I wanted the story to reach this turn where I think she realizes that uh, he's a bit of a con artist and he also realizes that she knows. And it's a kind of a moment of a reckoning for him and also about the relationship. And I'm interested in this idea of role reversals of kind of a father acting like a child and a child acting more mature than her age. And I guess it ties to, to this idea of the of the Luftmensch or the man of air because it's an, an idea that's very associated with the kind of Jewish diaspora. But but I, I took the idea and kind of brought it to, to Israel where there was this kind of um, idea of a different kind of Jewish person that is much more practical and kind of tied to the land and, and things like that. Uh, or at least that was the... The ideal that um, in the early years, and and so I was interested in, in kind of having this um, impractical person in, in a place where they sort of uh, don't belong, I guess, and and all, having all these kinds of schemes and and plans, and a lot of it is set in in my uh, <laughs> uh, neighborhood where I grew up in Israel, um, in Tel Aviv. So the places were familiar, and it was kind of interesting to to play around with them and. It, kind of imagine them in in different ways with this character, uh, through this character's eyes.
0: You could certainly Um, imagine the um, breakfast at the Hilton Hotel and um, (laughs) his his desire to charge it to the room, but that not being possible. And the father fights so hard for their roles to stay as they were. He pleads with the waiter not to have to make his daughter pay for their breakfast. Um, So he's, he's he's not giving up on being a proper dad without a fight. It's just he doesn't seem to be able to do it in any kind of practical meaningful way
1: exactly yeah um and I think I think yeah, I think his intentions are are to be to be a good a good father to her um and to and through these games and this kind of playfulness to to connect with her too and I think she she kind of realizes more more than he knows but uh yeah that definitely that, that area and the hotel it's it's all kind of close to, to where I grew up so it was it was interesting to, to set a story there Most of the other stories are in places you know that are either historical or, or kind of yeah more, more kind of imagined and less um, autobiographical
0: and it's strange we are so invested in the father's character that we don't want to him not to get the breakfast. We don't. We sort of don't. We sort of forgive him for scamming, don't we?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I, I wanted him to be sympathetic in that way, even, even though maybe he's kind of um, an extreme character. But uh, but I wanted. Uh, I think there is a kind of uh, play acting that goes into any kind of relationship, and there's in between kind of a father and a and a daughter. Is, is also kind of interesting in how, how do you play the role of a father and how do you play the role of daughter and I guess here they're they're almost like um, friends scheming together more than a parent and a child and I wanted to, to kind of um, play with that.
0: And in um, Jellyfish and Gaza, the father who we don't really meet until the very end of the story um, is so heroic in the boy's imagination and is then so different when he comes home I take it people who have been traumatized by their military service returning to their families is not an unusual story in Israel right
1: after I wrote the story I I did sort of um, talk on the phone and and interview uh, someone who who was himself uh, struggling with with PTSD after um, one of the wars but also worked as a therapist with with other kind of um Traumatized uh, soldiers, and, um, and it was interesting to to hear. He read the story and, and kind of gave me some some notes and tips. Um, and it was interesting to to hear from him. And because I did, I did want the story to be at least accurate on on the, on the emotional level of maybe how how it might feel, or at least how how it might um, appear. But I also wanted. It was important for me to write the story from the point of view of the children, rather than the father who, who isn't traumatized. Because I, I think the having the point of view of, of a kid is interesting because it they, they are so, sort of filled with, they have this great imagination and they're not uh, completely aware of <laughs> the facts of the situation. They kind of, they can guess at things and maybe their parents hint at it, but they don't really know. So I was more interested in having that kind of, uh, I guess it's a limited sort of point of view in a way, but it, I think, uh, Allows to get at a kind of uh, emotional core, even if it it's not sort of uh, adult and matter of fact. and so so it was kind of a decision to, to have it from the point of view of the children. and and I wanted them to have all these kinds of games and rituals and things that they think uh, will help their father in some way. And I have them uh, as twins uh, fraternal twins and and uh, I mean like like me and my brother. I also have a, a twin and I think we also had all kinds of games and, and rituals, not not in that context, but uh, just in general, I think there's a kind of secret language between between siblings in general, but maybe between twins especially, there's a kind of way of communicating that's pretty unique.
0: And the role of imagination is also very strong in the stories, thinking particularly in high heels, where imagination and reality are kind of led into the one tale. Tell me a little bit about the tightrope between real life and imagination. I am guessing we may all live more in our imaginative worlds than we care to admit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think, being an author, you definitely kind of uh, live more, <laughs> or at least part of the diamond in the imagined world. I guess uh, with high heels. I wanted, uh, I I didn't want this, the stories to kind of uh, in some places overlap or affect each other, but um, the character um, Sroh, he works in the shoe store and he imagines the life of this um, ballerina who um, died during the the Holocaust and um, imagines kind of um, the story of her high heels. And and I wanted this kind of, I guess back and forth this kind of dual narrative so she'll have her uh her place in the story as well and um but I didn't want to to write directly about her I think with certain subjects it is important to take a more roundabout approach sometimes uh, so so I wanted to follow his life um and, and and through his kind of fantasies or imagination to kind of look at at her life but I think I mean, (laughs) it's something that's definitely uh, true for for all of these stories. There's a mix of, you know, a lot of um, imagining and and, um, with a kind of uh, historical reality sometimes.
0: I was absolutely fascinated by the characters of Gecko and Monkey, who seem to be complete sociopaths. You don't um, shy away from the dark side of characters. Is that quite frightening to write
1: it's actually pretty fun i think it's it's more difficult to write uh, nice characters or, or not even difficult might not even be the right word but more um fiction i think um the kind of characters that you write in fiction need to kind of make mistakes and uh and be kind of uh, problematic in some way or have some kind of conflict because that that's kind of what drives the the story and it's not the kind of characters that maybe you want as your friends <laughs> in in your life but but with fiction it helps I think the story starts with the kind of um, when things go bad <laughs> when the characters get into trouble so it's almost easier to write these kinds of characters and and I hope with even with, with those characters in high Heels, that they're not um, kind of one-dimensional and they're uh, they're a little maybe you know ca- cartoonish in in their um, they're very manipulative and but uh, but still, I, I I wanted to try and kind of give each of them, I guess, their moment, uh, or, or to kind of uh, their their story. But but I think it's it's definitely much <laughs> much more fun to write those kinds of characters.
0: But it does make your main characters very vulnerable, because they're expecting one thing. He uh, he is expecting to make friends, and possibly a romance. And he gets completely turned over, and possibly, you know, possibly led to his death. Um, those are quite high stakes.
1: Yeah, they are. And I think um, maybe the story with the the kind of um, it's cliffhanger ending, where we're we're kind of left uh, suspended in terms of what happens to him, and 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 the stakes are are high. I guess maybe what what made it easier to. To write those uh, those parts was interweaving the, the story of um, Francesca, which uh, which is the dancer, um, but the stakes of her story were so high, even though it was historical and, and sort of uh, not happening in, in the real time of the story, the stakes of her story were so high that the the contemporary story with Sroch and Monkey and Gecko maybe felt more doable in that context, um, if that makes sense to. It didn't feel dramatic because the because the dancer story was was so full of of high stakes. Uh, or at least that's the way I kind of uh, saw. it.
0: And the veracity of that story, you play with you play with the reader really well, uh, well from you know what, uh, whether what we are reading happened as we're being told, and then um even sock is doubting, you know, doubting whether the, the shoes were really hers. And I was just thinking, if they had have been hers, wouldn't the weapon, the weapon shoe, be found embedded in the officer's eye? So it would have, uh, uh, it would, it would have been quite, it would have been quite um, difficult for it to be retrieved. So that was uh, <laughs> were, 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 were we having a bit of, a, <laughs> of imaginative license on that one,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wanted the story to be. I guess it's it's unclear. Uh, I, I I think. I wanted, I wanted it to be a kind of something that um, he hears from his father and and believes as a, as a young boy, and also maybe if he knows there's some kind of uh, there's some plot holes there and some <laughs> inconsistencies, but he he wants to believe more than he actually does maybe, um, and it gives maybe uh, his life and in, in the true story is kind of monotonous and boring, and um, and he wants to believe in these high heels that have some kind of meaning and history and uh, the story behind them um, that's, you know, heroic or something. So I, I wanted that feeling of, of having a, when, when he kind of finally realized that his, his father maybe has been not really lying to him, but kind of telling a story to, to maybe um, give, give give their life a bit more kind of <laughs> meaning. I, I wanted that kind of realization to be very, kind of powerful for off, and, and something that is very hard to, to kind of come to terms with because he's meant to believe that these shoes are so important. But then he does still go up and, and try to get them. So a part of him maybe does still believe in, in the story and that these high heels have some kind of
0: meaning. Are the stories that parents tell children often quite benignly, are they sort of the first level of national and rel- religious myth-making? Are they the stories we hear first and then the others get added on?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, um, connecting the kind of personal family stories to the bigger myths and national stories. And I think that's that's probably true for, for a lot of stories. Um, and even when children are read sort of fairy tales or fables, which kind of historically have, have had this function of Having a you know a moral or a kind of educational value or, or something like that, even though the the fairy tales um, in their earlier at least variations were very dark and <laughs> violent and uh, didn't seem very educational at all, but um, I think it, at some point they became uh, tools, I guess, for uh, scaring children not to do certain things. Or so so I guess I, I was I was interested in in those kinds of stories, and I I also. Grew up uh, <laughs> a couple of minutes away from uh, the house where uh, Kafka's old manuscripts were kept So um, in Tel Aviv. So basically when Kafka told his friend, um, Max Broad, to, to burn all of his manuscripts after he died, and thankfully uh, Max Broad didn't do it. And he took them with him when he came uh, to Tel Aviv and, and he developed this kind of uh, relationship um, with a woman there. Um, who he left all these manuscripts to all of Kafka's <laughs> manuscripts. And th- this is in a house on the street called the Spinoza Street. And it was really like five minutes away from where I grew up in this kind of random house filled with cats. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding these manuscripts and who gets to keep them and uh, should they be public? Um, but anyway, I, I think something about Kafka's uh, kind of combination of or the kind of nightmarish quality of, of Kafka's work and the kind of combination of humor and tragedy and his interest in fairy tales and fables, um, all those things um, I was very interested in. So I don't know if you know his kind of spirit was hovering around there or something, but, um, but I was always really interested in his work and uh, the way he can kind of um, play around with, with uh, those ideas.
0: I was wondering, um... When we're talking about the creation of um, myths and stories, your story where the boys want to have a Holocaust survivor to bring to school with them, and so they sort of project a fictional story onto someone of the right age who they find in the supermarket. Did that get you into hot water with um, <laughs> with anyone? Because that's, that felt to be quite a quite a daring construction.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the way that story started. Um, I was actually um, in New York. I was in, in Brooklyn with some friends, some Israeli friends. And and I remember one of them said that for some reason he was always jealous of uh, his classmates who had relatives that were Holocaust survivors. And uh, this friend, his family came from Iraq and, he didn't have any relatives that were survivors. Uh, and I thought that was a kind of s- strange thing to say and, and kind of interesting the way that trauma acquires a kind of social cachet and I think that's that's true for that that's true in, in Israel as well. And, and my grandfather's a Holocaust survivor and I'm also a Holocaust historian. so it's always been a subject that has been kind of um, very present in my family so I was interested in this idea of these two kids who are, I guess, kind of (laughs) jealous of of their classmates Uh, and they wanna, uh, like you said, you know, abduct this old man and pretend he's their grandfather and he's a survivor. And I think it it plays with some tension that's very present in in Israel about kind of whose stories are told. And I remember in high school, uh, obviously a lot of the curriculum is devoted to the Holocaust. But then there's hardly anything devoted to the history of uh, Sephardi Jews um, from the Middle East and North Africa, and I remember kind of uh, thinking about that, and I wanted to to explore it in in a way that was, um, I guess, absurdist with this story and kind of funny, but um, but also that touches on things that are that are sensitive. So with this story, <laughs> it, yeah, it it was interesting. I think. Uh, Similarly to to High Heels, maybe in a way there are certain subjects which are better written about indirectly, and I think with something like um, the Shoah, I I needed to find a kind of absurd way of of kind of talking about it, uh, rather than kind of writing about it directly, which I think can sometimes lead to books that are sort of more sensational or kitschy or, or melodramatic and actually the more they try and uh, directly write about something like the Holocaust, the more they actually uh, sort of misrepresent it. Uh, so, so I think maybe it's one of those subjects which it makes much more sense to write about indirectly. Maybe that's the, the only way to write about it in a way that's, that feels true. And, and I'm thinking of something like Mouse, the, the comic book, or, or the books of um, uh, Patrick Modiano, or some of Apple, Applefield's books but I, I think to me it felt like a subject that I needed to I needed to write about but in a way that was indirect
0: I hope I'm paraphrasing this correctly it's almost, it's, it's a subject that is so monumental and so awful that the only way to approach it from where we are now is is obliquely it's it's not something that can be looked on Looked at head-on in a useful way.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's true, and it's sort of the the questions I'm having with um with the novel I'm working on now, which uh, began as something that was inspired by my grandfather's life and his childhood, and he he writes about it in his um, memoir uh, when memory comes, and he grew up in in Prague and. And he spent the war years uh, hidden in a Catholic monastery, actually. So his his parents um, tried to uh, to to flee, and uh, and they were caught and, and eventually uh, sent to Auschwitz. And he sort of he was very young when when he was put in this Catholic monastery in France. And he it's not that he forgot entirely that he was Jewish, but a big part of him, I guess, did. And he he was ready to go into the priesthood. He was very serious about his studies and he kind of forgot all about his earlier childhood. And um, and then at the end of the war, one of the priests uh, told him about his parents and told him who he was. And so, so I've been interested in that kind of, um, the way identity can be malleable and the way you can hide certain parts of yourself. But again, thinking about that story, uh, which is my grandfather's story, I, I'm interested in it, but I don't want to write about it directly, so I'm kind of looking for for ways to approach it without sort of telling that story. exactly.
0: <laughs> and your grandfather is the inspiration for the two brothers kind of nemesis in the class who uh, has, has a grandfather who is a Holocaust historian. <laughs>
1: um, as a kind of inside joke, yeah, but I, 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 showed, yeah, I showed him that story and, and he laughed and um, I remember, yeah, I remember telling someone uh, about my grandfather, and we we studied some of his book in school, and and I remember someone someone called him the Elvis of the Holocaust, and I thought that was funny, uh, and he did too, I think, but um, he he is kind of um, yeah, th- this this kind of um uh, historian of of the Holocaust, and but this yeah, th- this this novel is uh, kind of more directly about his I guess his life more than his historical works but yeah that's that's right
0: (laughs) the women in the stories tend to be very singular and often on their often on their own Um, what's the what's the attraction of the lone heroine
1: yeah that's really interesting and I think that's that's true and especially for I guess a story like walking Shiva, which is um, about a kind of mother and daughter going on this journey to discover which one of uh, their the the mother's sons uh, died in the war. But it is almost like the the journey of a, the classic journey of a, of a heroine in um, in its structure and in the kind of a drama I guess around the story and about the the characters being alone. I guess. Yeah, I think I think that's that's an interesting way to put it. I didn't I didn't think of it that way, but I think that's true. I guess it allows me to spend also some time in in their thoughts, and I think that's something that I definitely explored with a story like Checkpoint. I think I I was interested in this character that in some ways is very uh, is very cultured. There's all these references to theater and just poems and to um music and, and things like that and that she's thinking about and i guess that's one of the ways that she has of relating to the world and also thinking about uh the death of her son she she can't really i think think of it directly and she uses all these kinds of filters of she imagines it as a theater production or she imagines his funeral as a kind of dance or yeah but but i, I think i wanted a character that will be very alive in, in her in her thoughts. And the, the story is, a lot of it is happening um, kind of in this um, almost like a whirlpool shape is what I imagine her thoughts to be in. It's related to this obsession with the death of her son. And that's why I sort of opened the story with this image of a washing machine was spinning around with her son's uh, army uniform in it and ended also the story with her returning home finally um, from, from this checkpoint and uh, describe the house and finally the uh, image of the succulents um, and the leaves kind of spiraling inward. I wanted this idea that her thoughts are always spinning.
0: And there was also the aspect of her thoughts almost being predictive, except slightly wrong, in that when she saw the young Palestinians coming through the checkpoint, she would start thinking about what their futures might hold given all the indignities they'd just suffered. But actually the person she came to harm with was a settler. So she had, you know, premonitions about violence were right, but the perpetrator of it wasn't. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of the power of imagination to bring things into being?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I did. I did have that kind of her, her imagination kind of almost working over time, <laughs> in, in this kind of situation, and even even when she she is being attacked by the settlers, she's still imagining things. So even then, it doesn't sort of stop, and she's not. Um, even when there's there's sort of violence and the immediacy of that, it's it's not sort of uh, something that can switch off the the obsession and the thoughts about her son. So I guess in in this story, it's it's a different kind of um imagination to you know the, the man who sold the air in the holy land it's a kind of checkpoint it's a kind of um obsessive thinking um and it's about you know woman who who or this mother who can't really switch off and she she's always thinking about it
0: yeah she is um she is sort of sort of soaked sort of yeah sort of soaked in grief it's it's completely shaping her it does bring me to you um one of my final points is that Checkpoint ends on as positive a note as can be in that, as you say, she returns to her flat and she notices that it's comfortable and there are plants and, you know, the, the pictures are there and, you know there, is, you know, there is some level of comfort in the world. And it was the same for uh, Rachel, Rachel and Leah in Walking Shiva, that although they've had the most devastating news the birds are still singing, the sky is blue, the sun is shining. Can you uh, can you tell me a little bit about how important it is to find the silver lining in the cloud, to find some sort of regenerative or redemptive element to some of the very difficult things you write about? Yeah,
1: I guess with with the ending in in Walking Shiva, there's I wanted it to be, I guess in a sense it's. And not as gloomy <laughs> or, or there's some, some silver lining, but also I wanted to show this kind of um, dissonance when, you know, we're feeling one thing, but then the world around us isn't kind of cooperating and it's, you know, she's feeling uh, this terrible kind of sadness, but then the world is, you know, everything's uh, blooming and, and like you said, the birds and sky and everything. Um, so, so this kind of tension, I guess, between what she's feeling inside and then this world that, refuses to uh, change itself in order to suit her, <laughs> her kind of inner interior uh, climate, her atmosphere. And I, I guess I guess there is a kind of uh, hopefulness about this idea of being able to, to mourn properly and taking this journey, instead of sitting Shiva's this kind of uh, twist on it of, of walking, um, Shiva and this idea of, of mourning as a kind of uh, journey and as movement rather than something that's uh, static. So I guess some some of the stories kind of uh, end on, on that kind of ambivalent note of uh, they they deal with, with some kind of, um, with some difficult subjects but uh, I didn't want them to be kind of one tone or monotone. I wanted there to be also humor to mix in with with some of the tragedy so <laughs> i hope it comes across
0: absolutely um, your possibly your most pos- positive uh, character is sherizard who is living in the most difficult and dangerous situation and yet finds positivity all the time what was the inspiration for her a- apart from the cl- the classical character was, uh, does does she have does she have a, a real life inspiration
1: uh <laughs> um she does it no um that character i i guess again i was interested in um the kind of distance between what we sh- we show and and the kind of uh she's also acting for these uh, soldiers and, and putting on a kind of role and her voice has this kind of magical quality to it so she's maybe the one of the only characters who remains kind of a mystery i think uh Maybe also to me, she's this kind of um, maybe because she's based on on Sheherazel, she she's almost like a mythic figure and less of a kind of uh human, uh you know like some of the other characters. So to me, she's kind of um, I guess a bit of a cipher.
0: And she also shares the predictive qualities that Adam's mother has in Checkpoint, in that she um she can make wishes turn into reality if not quite the version that their their wish I had in mind
1: right right her stories kind of um, come true in, in in a way and um, there are a lot of allusions to, to kind of fairy tales and and things like that that are kind of turned on their heads and and kind of manipulated in in different ways and um, also this idea of the different different points of view of who who is the wolf and um, so sort of who's the predator and who's the prey? And I kind of play around with that, with the soldiers and with Scheherazade and who's the prisoner and who's the captive. Kind of that dynamic also changes throughout.
0: Yeah, the sands sh- the are always shifting in your work in a quite kind of marvellous way. What would you like the reader to take away from The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land?
1: I don't know. I, I guess like any good story, I guess I hope it, it makes someone... Um, feel something i mean i think stories can can work on on different levels and and maybe some of it is kind of intellectual and like the things that that we're talking about but some of it is kind of hard to put into words and it is maybe uh just leaving with a with a kind of feeling and um maybe that's different for for each person who who reads it but i think spending time with with the characters and and being transported um in some ways to, to a place that's Maybe different and new
0: and um before we say goodbye um Oma, please tell me about your next project what's your what's the next thing that's going to be for us to read
1: yeah so it's um, a novel uh, called the glass golem like i said a little bit before it's partly inspired by my grandfather's story but it's sort of changed a lot since that initial <laughs> starting point so so who knows but um yeah, that that's sort of what I'm working on now and it'll also be um out with, with
0: Random House. And any idea when it's going to be published?
1: I'm <laughs> I'm still I'm still writing it, but uh hopefully soon.
0: Okay. Well on the on that very, very positive note, Omar Friedlander, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on the Church Times podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more